Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, Episode 4, The One Where Everyone Dies. Remember that this is a listener-supported podcast. If you want to support it, you can go to thehistoryofpodcast.com and sign up for membership at only $5 a month. This week, our newest pioneer is Mary. Thanks, Mary. This show couldn't exist without you. Last week, we left off with Newport sailing back to England on June 22nd. He had with him a letter from the governors, addressed to the Virginia Council back in London, to spread the word on how the expedition was going. The colonists were spectacularly excited about Jamestown. The seas were plentiful, as was the land. There was plenty of game and timber, and it would be able to supply all the tobacco the English could need. All the colonists needed was more labourers. When Newport arrived back in London on August 12th and got off the plane, sorry, off the boat, it wasn't so much these resources that caused excitement back home, but instead the gold. There was talk of mountains in the interior which had plentiful gold, and this was the really exciting stuff. They'd all be rich. However, a sample was taken back to England for testing, and it was found that the colonists hadn't discovered gold at all. It was instead iron pyrite. Fool's gold. This put the future of the colony in jeopardy. Sure, there were good resources, but there was no gold. Was it really worth the investment? The Spanish ambassador in London, Don Pedro de Zuinga, wrote to King Philip III to inform him that the English colony was sterile and it was likely that it would be used as a base for piracy instead. While there may have been no gold, there was enough good news that the company decided to send a second expedition to the colony with more supplies. That was how things had been going for Newport, but how about for the colonists? If you've paid attention to the episode title, it should be blindingly obvious that things were not going well. There had been some notable successes for Jamestown thus far. They had built their fortifications, they had built houses, they had fought back the Powhatans, they had planted their first crop, and they had seemingly overcome their internal struggles. Before Newport sailed back to England, John Smith was restored to the council. This left Wingfield as president, and then Gosnold, Radcliffe, Smith, Martin and Kendall also on the governing council of seven, with Newport absent. That was where we closed the episode. But there were hints of trouble. Wahun Sonicock had realised that a frontal assault of the colony wasn't a good idea, so instead he waited. If any Englishman strayed outside of the colony with their guard down, they wouldn't last very long. The shelters were also pretty flimsy. They were boiling in the summer and offered little to no protection when the wind came in or when the rain starts to fall. And then there was the choice of location. Jamestown Island was marshy. The choice of settlement was low-lying. It was exactly where the Virginia Council told the colonists not to settle, in an unhealthy place. I hinted that this would cause trouble in our last episode. Now is the time. Problems began almost as soon as Newport left, as the colony entered the sickly season, which lasted from July to September. It began on the 6th of August, when John Asby died of bloody flux. Three days later, on the 9th, George Flower died of swelling. The next day, William Brustler died of a wound received from the Powhatans. And then, 
the men just kept on dropping. Percy attributed it to famine, but he could not be any more wrong. He could try, but he would not be successful. Famine really doesn't make sense, as during these months, they would have been able to fish for sturgeon from the river. Rather, the most deadly plague was typhoid. If you have a sensitive stomach, you may want to skip past this bit. Typhoid fever is a disease caused by the bacteria Salmonella typhi, closely related to the Salmonella more commonly associated with food poisoning. It is highly contagious. The bacteria can be passed out of the body through waste, mostly faeces, but sometimes urine too. If a person came into contact with infected waste, they will too catch the disease. This is why typhoid is such a problem in areas with low sanitation. While it's less of a problem than it was 100 years ago, typhoid fever affects around 21 million people annually, killing 200,000. But that's with modern medicine. It had a much higher mortality rate before antibiotics of around 1 in 5. Once the Salmonella typhi enters the body, usually through infected food or water, it works its way through the digestive system until it reaches the small intestines. The bacteria then moves into the bloodstream, where it can gain access to the other organs, by attaching itself to the white blood cells. It gets into the liver, the spleen, and bone marrow, where it can grow before moving back into the bloodstream. From there, it attacks the biliary system, the part of the body which creates bile for digesting food. This is the gallbladder, as well as bits of the liver. It also begins to attack tissue in the gut. This is when symptoms develop, including a fever of around 40 degrees Celsius, or 104 Fahrenheit, headaches, stomach pain, loss of appetite, lethargy, constipation, and diarrhoea. The disease takes about a month to run its course, but the infected may take longer to die, like assuming you don't throw them under a bus or something. It is suspected that the original carrier was Reverend Hunt, who you'll remember was ill during the initial six-week delay off the coast of England. He lectured the gentleman not to abandon the expedition in between bouts of vomiting. This would fit. You see, while the boats were there, the men could drink beer, but once Newport sailed away, the men were forced to have something called the common kettle. It was a drink of barley and wheat boiled in water, and it was Hunt who tended the common kettle. It is suspected by a leading authority on the subject, Dr. Windham Blanton, that typhoid killed more of the Jamestown colonists than all the other diseases combined. So the men started dropping like flies. This was bad, but the first significant problem occurred on August 22nd. Bartholomew Gosnold, the founder of the Jamestown movement, died, aged 36. Gosnold was a great, calming influence on the senior figures, you should remember how he had stopped Wingfield and Newport from killing Smith in the Caribbean. With him dead, things really begin to go to hell in a handbasket. On the 10th of September, Radcliffe, Smith and Martin removed Wingfield from office as president. They accused him of hoarding food and drink, while the rest of the company starved, while he accused Smith of planning to abandon the colony and fleeing to Newfoundland. Wingfield was also accused of plotting with the Spanish. It does seem that there was someone communicating with the Spanish, but it is now thought that it was Kendall rather than Wingfield. Anyway, 
Wingfield was exiled back to England and Radcliffe was made the colony's second president. According to Wingfield, the triumvirate of Radcliffe, Smith and Martin usurped power and the rule of law disappeared from the colony. He related one account that James Reed, a blacksmith, was sentenced to execution for hitting Radcliffe, but he saved himself by revealing a plot by Kendall. How much of this was true? To be blunt, we don't know. Because of this plot, Kendall, who was one of the councillors of the settlement, was shot. And with that, our seven councillors are down to three. The company chose not to follow up either the council's allegations against Wingfield or Wingfield's allegations against the council. But we don't know if this is because they didn't believe them or because it would have been terrible publicity for the venture if word of what was going on got out. Whether these complaints were real or imagined, the six were plainly no longer friends. Could things be any worse for the colony? 104 colonists had landed at Jamestown in May. By the time winter was setting in, there were fewer than 40 of them left, and those few settlers were fighting amongst themselves. As a historian, I much prefer a sarcastic comment to advice, but even to me, such constant arguing doesn't seem like a good idea. The colony should not have survived. They desperately needed supplies that Newport would bring back with him, and his labour too. When Newport did return, which we won't cover until next week, I wonder just how brutal the welcoming committee for the new settlers was. Welcome to the new world, it sucks, you're going to love it. Not that this really matters in the grand scheme of things, it's a moot point. It is almost certain that the colony wouldn't have survived were it not for the Native Americans. They'd become a lot friendlier since the big ships, the Susan Constant and the Godspeed, had left with Newport. The English seemed much less imposing without their ability to patrol the coast, and so they supplied the English with desperately needed supplies. Unlike Joey, Powhatans do share food. Things were still not going well for the English. Radcliffe and Martin were not loved, and so Smith took charge of day-to-day operations. This cannot have been easy for Smith. He had few men, most of those were ill, and those that weren't wished they were dead. But Smith kept things going, such as constructing cabins to replace their falling-apart tents. When the food supply began to run low, he sailed downstream to trade with the tribe known as the Cacoftans. They laughed in Smith's face and gave him a few beans in exchange. Smith wasn't amused. He launched an attack, but not to kill, just to demonstrate that he could kill if he wanted to. He could just take their things, but he wanted to trade. The Cacoftans were suitably frightened, and then traded with Smith as he wished. Even these supplies didn't last for the English long, though, and they were in trouble again by November. The leaders drew lots, and it fell to Smith to sail upriver. Once he reached the shallow water, Smith decided against risking the barge, and so found two Native Americans who were willing to sail with him in a canoe. And so Smith carried on up the river with Jehu Robinson, and Thomas Emery. They disembarked, and Smith decided to explore with one of the Native Americans as a guide, while Robinson and Emery stayed with the canoe and the other Native American. Within 15 minutes, 
Smith heard a shout, and he was very quickly surrounded by 200 Powhatan warriors. While Smith had a pistol and managed to fend them off for a while, he was literally outnumbered 200 to 1. He was captured. Robinson and Emery were both killed. He was then taken to Openchaukanov, the brother of Wahonsonokok. In an effort to try and buy him some time, he took out a compass from his pocket and gave it to the chief as a gift. The Powhatan, who had acted as a guide, spoke some English, and so Smith was able to explain just about what he could do. To quote Smith himself, Much they marvelled at the playing of the fly and needle, which they could see so plainly, and yet not touch it, because of the glass that covered them. But when he demonstrated by that globe-like jewel the roundness of the earth and skies, the sphere of the sun, moon, and stars, and how the sun did chase the night round about the world continually, the greatness of the land and sea, the diversity of nations, variety of complexions, and how we were to them the antipodes, and many other such like matters, they all stood amazed with admiration. End quote. The more we deal with the Powhatans, you'll see that these interactions are far more complicated than they seem at first. Every meeting has the flavour of, they don't know that we know that they know. There is a lot of both sides acting like friends when they really don't like each other, and sudden changes of mood. For instance, as impressed as they were by his compass, this was not enough to stop them tying Smith up to a tree and preparing to shoot him within the hour. Isn't that just kick you in the crotch, spit on your neck, fantastic? This cliffhanger moment is where we're going to stop it for this week. Yes, I know, I'm a cruel, horrible person. I wish I could be less teasing, but I don't want to. I'm not even sorry. But, before we get onto the plugs, I just want to apologise for some of the lines in today's episode, if you don't watch Friends. You've been bamboozled, I'm sure. If you've enjoyed today's episode, you can find our website, thehistoryofpodcast.com, where you can sign up for membership. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash thehistoryofpodcast, and then follow me on Twitter, at HistoryJamie. If you want to receive emails about my upcoming shows, then contact my email address, thehistoryofpodcast at gmail.com. Will John Smith get out of this sticky situation? Will people in Jamestown stop dying? Will we have such a dramatic ending to episode 5? Tune in next week to find out.